Welcome back to another repugnant episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive head first in all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Ben Affleck. But who cares? Come on, everybody. Let's go rock and roll. This episode takes place on April 14, 1960. The United States was in the process of becoming the first country to legalize the birth control pill, with the contraceptive pill soon to be made available for sale over the counter. The first French New Wave film, Breathless, directed by Jean-Luc Godard, had just been released as Alfred Hitchcock's classic psychological thriller, Psycho, was about to premiere. The Montreal Canadiens beat out the Toronto Maple Leafs 4-0 in a four-game sweep, earning them their fifth consecutive Stanley Cup title. And of course, our good old friend Elvis Presley had just recorded It's Now or Never, Fever, and Are You Lonesome Tonight at RCA Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. Today's episode is about the tale of how one of the most important record labels in not only rock and roll history, but all of history came to be. In fact, I think it's pretty safe to say that this might just be the very tippy-top most important label of all time. This label produced hit after hit and launched the careers of some of the most iconic artists of all time. This label also transformed the music industry and left an indelible mark on popular culture. And the label I'm talking about, of course, is Motown. Now you see, Motown is known as being a powerhouse of soul, R&B, and pop music. And of course, some of you may be wondering what this has to do with rock and roll. Well, its influence is undeniable and should be obvious, but if you are not yet familiar with how this show goes, let me assure you that I will explain how it ties in. Motown wasn't just catchy melodies and infectious rhythms, but also transcended boundaries of race and culture. In an era of segregation and discrimination, Motown brought people together through music, uniting audiences from all backgrounds and inspiring a generation of artists to follow in its footsteps. And so before we stage dive in and learn all about this glorious, a world-renowned label, we need to first learn about a man named Barry Gordy, who just so happened to be one of the most influential figures in the history of popular music. So let's roll that clock on back like we always do, this time to November 28th, 1929, and find out who this other influential musical Barry really is. Gordy was born November 28, 1929 in Detroit, Michigan, the seventh of eight children in a working-class family. His father, Barry Gordy Sr., was the grandson of a slave and plantation owner named James Thomas Gordy, who strangely enough was also the great-grandfather of President Jimmy Carter. Despite it being the Depression and all, Barry's father, who also was known as Pops, managed to become a successful businessman. He owned his own grocery store, his own plastering and carpentry company, and he also ran his own print shop. His mother, Bertha Fuller Gordy, co-founded the Friendship Mutual Life Insurance Company, so they were fairly well off. They arrived in Detroit as part of the Great Migration in 1922, which if you're unfamiliar with it is the name of the event in history where millions of African Americans moved up north for a better opportunity and to escape the oppression of the rural south. 
Once they settled down, they became a very close, tight-knit, hard-working family, scrimping and saving every penny they had to give them a middle-class lifestyle. In his youth, Barry fondly remembers listening and singing and dancing along to music with his siblings. His other brothers and sisters did well in school, however, Barry, who showed an interest in music in school and even expressed an interest in songwriting at the early age of seven, managed to get kicked out of his music class and struggled a bit with his studies, to say the least. By the time Barry got to high school, his interest changed from music to the sport of boxing, and this eventually led him to drop out of school and pursue a career as a professional boxer. Before he was even 21, Barry had made an impressive career for himself. He had won 13 of his 19 featherweight fights, yet he didn't feel quite fulfilled, and he also realized that all this fighting was going to age him much faster. So he reverted back to his old interest of songwriting and began looking into that as being his next possible path. All this quickly came to a halt though because in 1951 he was drafted into the army and shipped off to Korea. This ended up being good for Gordy however because it allowed him to get his GED and it also gave him the opportunity to save up some money during the two years he was out serving his country. When he returned back home he took the money he had saved and opened up a small record store with a friend called 3D Record Mart, House of Jazz. They specialized in selling 3D glasses for some reason and jazz records as this musical styling was becoming somewhat of an obsession for Gordy. His goal was to educate customers about the beauty of jazz. Unfortunately though, the other people in town weren't quite as hip to this little niche jazz thing he had going on, and it turned out they just wanted to buy R&B records instead, which ultimately led Gordy to close down his shop due to poor sales. By 1953, Barry was now married and had a family to support, so he got a job on the Ford Motors Lincoln Mercury assembly line, applying upholstery to car interiors all day long. If you're not familiar, back at this time, Detroit was the epicenter of the automobile industry, and they were cranking out cars all day, every day, non-stop. Detroit was a booming and bustling metropolitan city. It was certainly a place to be. The exact opposite of how it sadly stands today. But anyway, so putting upholstery in cars all day got very monotonous, very fast for Gordy, yet he did not see this as being a bad thing. In fact, he actually quite enjoyed it because now he could focus on writing songs all day long in his head while he was working. This completely refueled his interest in songwriting as a career, and so much so that he decided to leave his new career and pursue songwriting full-time, much to the dismay of his wife, who did not approve of this move and eventually ended up separating from him because of it. This didn't stop Barry though, and he returned back home to his family to tell them of his new plan. When he got there, he began co-writing songs with one of his sisters and some friends around town. His parents, who by this point were successful enough to pull some strings around town, then connected Barry with a nightclub owner of the Flame Show Bar Talent Club. It would be here where Gordy would meet someone that would change the course of not only his life, but also the course of rock and roll, and world history for that matter. This person was a singer by the name of Jackie Wilson, who would go on to be known as Mr. Excitement because of his masterful showmanship and stage presence and who also had some previous success with his former group Billy Ward and the Dominoes. After leaving the Dominoes, Jackie was looking to venture off on a solo career, and this presented Barry with an opportunity to co-write a song for Jackie called Reet Petite, a nod to the Louis Jordan song called Reet Petite and Gone. This would be the first record Jackie would release as a solo artist, and to everyone's surprise, the record turned out to be a hit. It managed to reach number 62 on the Billboard charts, which is moderately successful, but it caught on like wildfire in the UK and reached number 6 in the single charts over there. 
This was all the proof Barry Gordy needed to know that he was on the right track and should further pursue his new music career. He would continue to write more songs, including one for Etta James called All I Could Do Was Cry, which did well for the Chess record label, and he would write more songs for Jackie like To Be Loved, That Is Why, and the legendary track Lonely Teardrops, which was so legendary that it would go on to be recognized by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as one of the songs that helped shape rock and roll, and it was also entered into the Grammy Hall of Fame, and even ranked number 315 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Greatest Songs of All Time list. If you've never heard this song, go take the time to sit down and listen to this one. It's one of those songs that when you hear it, it sounds like a song that's just supposed to exist. So make sure to check it out. I'll have the link on our website, www.rockandrollhistory.com. So after this early success, Gordy decided his next best move would be to start up his own publishing company. This company was called Joe Bet Music, which came from a combination of letters from his children's name. It was also at this time Barry had recently discovered a young local singing group going by the name The Matadors. He first heard them at an audition for Brunswick Records, which was one of the many labels that Gordy was now writing and producing many songs for. The group didn't land a record deal with Brunswick since the bigwigs over there thought they were too similar to the Platters, but Gordy took interest in the group, especially because one singer stuck out to him. This young singer brought a notebook along with him to the audition, which was full of over a hundred songs. Since he was only 17 years old and still in high school, Gordy found this ambition quite impressive and followed the group out of the audition. He introduced himself to the singer and he told him he liked his group. And the singer's name was William Robinson Jr., but all his friends called him Smokey. Yep, you guessed it, in this moment, Barry Gordy befriended young Smokey Robinson. And after this, the two began working closely together and they would work on crafting songs for Smokey's group who now had changed their name from the Matadors to the Miracles. So it's now 1958, and Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson were working on crafting some songs together. The first one they managed to put out was a tongue-in-cheek answer song to the single Get a Job by the Silhouettes. You know that one. Here's a quick clip. So that was Get a Job, and here's the Miracles' first record called I Got a Job. I got a job. This was the very first record they put together. It was recorded at United Sound Studios in Detroit, and Barry managed to get it released on the label End Records. It was quite a silly song and had low to moderate success, but the song sparked something inside Gordy and Robinson, and they both knew they were onto something. For all his hard work, Gordy only made $3.19 for putting the production together. This is when Smokey suggested to Gordy that he should just start his own label so that he could get paid more instead of just being a publisher and receiving pennies. Gordy, of course, liked this idea and decided to run with it. He would then return back to his family once again to tell them of this next big thing he had envisioned and was starting to plan. The record label sounded like a good idea to everyone, and so Barry's family lent him $800, which in today's money is closer to eight grand. 
January 12, 1959, Barry would then take this money and start up his own record label, Tamla Records. Originally, he wanted to name it Tammy Records since Debbie Reynolds had just recorded a hit song titled Tammy for the movie Tammy and the Bachelor. He thought this would appeal to a larger, wider audience and would allow his label and music to cross over and sell well to people of all colors. To make it his own and to avoid any legal trouble though, he decided to go with Tamla since it had a nice ring to it anyways. For his first release, Gordy sought out some local talent and decided on taking a chance on a freshly turned 20 year old named Marv Johnson whom he had just discovered singing in a group at a carnival. They were called the Serenaders. Marv himself was actually already gaining some traction around town with a single he had just put out on another label called Kudos Records. And it was already building up somewhat of a following for young Marv. Gordy was not only impressed by this, but what stood out to him most was Johnson's high tenor vocal range and his ability as a songwriter. Gordy, of course, being a writer himself, thought he found someone he could work well with. So right away he got to work and helped Marv polish up one of his own original songs titled Come To Me. Once the song was ready, Gordy then next set up a recording session. To play the music on the track, Barry hired some local musicians, including singer Brian Holland to help with backing vocals, a bass player, and also arguably the greatest bass player of all time, this is a name to remember for later, James Jamerson, and drummer Benny Benjamin. Actually, just remember all these names. And so they got to work right away and got it recorded in February at United Sound Systems, a studio where John Lee Hooker recorded Boogie Chillin', a song which you may remember from our previous episode, where Lester Sill used it to coax Jerry Lieber into becoming a songwriter, but I digress. And then by May had it slapped on a 7-inch vinyl and began selling it around town. The songs instantly became a local hit, and they sold enough copies to garner the attention of United Artists, a big-time record company who wanted to distribute it nationally. Since Gordy and his small-time Tamla Records didn't have the power or money to fulfill such a demand for the song, he decided to sell them the rights to it along with Marv Johnson's contract. The record then went on to make it into the top 30 on the Billboard's Hot 100 and the top 10 on the R&B charts. So now Barry Gordy was down an artist on his record label, but he had gained a fat sack of cash, enough to keep him going for the next few years finding local talent, writing songs, producing records with them. He even began other subsidiary labels. One of these labels was called Anna Records, which he started alongside one of his sisters, and they put out uh, some hits as well, including most notably a track Barry co-wrote with one of his secretaries, fittingly titled Money, That's What I Want, which would go on to be famously covered by the Beatles. During this time, his publishing firm Jobet was going strong and copywriting all his music, and he even had a songwriting company called Raber Music. It seemed Gordy was slowly starting his own musical empire here, so he needed a place where he could run all this stuff under one roof. Spending time at all the local recording studios such as United Sound Systems was bleeding him dry, and so he needed to find a place where he could run this operation, along with having his own recording studio. That was the next thing that was on his mind. He began searching around Detroit for the right location to do all this. By mid-1959, Gordy had found an old photography studio that was for sale at 2648 West Grand Boulevard in Detroit, Michigan near the New Center area. It had a big display window on the front and he thought that this would be the perfect place to do it. He purchased the building and immediately had a sign put across the top of the display window that said Hitsville USA, a bold tagline that showed Gordy's faith in the future he was now envisioning. 
Gordy moved into the top floor of the house and all the rest of the rooms were fixed into administrative offices and the garage was converted into a recording studio. It was completely a DIY setup. Gordy did all the work himself with help from his father who was helpful as he did have that uh, contractor business. He would then sign young local artists that he would seek out around town. Mostly singing groups, which of course, you know, like the Miracles, as in Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, the Temptations, the Marvelettes, the Four Tops, and so on. Many of the groups were fresh out of high school and would sing on street corners and in the local clubs. Many of them would just come by Gordy's new Hitsville, USA building just for an audition. One of these groups that came by were three young girls who were still in high school. Gordy gave them the time of day and allowed them to audition, and he really liked what he heard, but he was afraid that they were too young, so he didn't sign them. However, the girls would continue to come back to the offices and hang around trying to help out any way they could, like singing backups or supplying hand claps. Eventually, after enough of their persistence, Barry caved and then signed them. This group became known as the Supremes. And so here we are, April 14, 1960, just outside the Hitsville, USA building in Detroit, Michigan. This day is a historic day, and we're just in time to witness it. So if we hurry up, maybe we can catch a glimpse of the big moment in person. Barry Gordy now had a small musical empire budding, and so he thought the best course of action would be to incorporate all his businesses under one name. And now, as we are approaching the building, we can hear the band rehearsing for the next song they're about to record. And if we enter into the offices, we might be able to catch Gordy signing the papers to make this momentous day official. Ah yes, there he is. So now, there he goes. All his businesses are now under one name. Can anybody guess what that name is? Anyone? Of course, it's Motown! Motown, for those of you who don't know, is short for Motortown, which is what Detroit was known as at the time. They had the three largest auto manufacturers in the world churning out cars on an assembly line all day and all night long. Gordy took inspiration from this and wanted to turn his operation into something that resembled the level of production and quality, and he believed in that whole philosophy. He had the label now function like a Ford assembly line. He had hired songwriters, including most notably the soon-to-be world-renowned songwriting team for their contributions to Motown, Holland Dozier and Holland, comprised of two brothers, Brian and Eddie Holland, who you might remember that I mentioned him earlier uh, on the single with Barry and Marv Johnson, and their co-writer, Lamont Dozier. These guys are on the level of our old friends Lieber and Stoller. In fact, I actually think this team surpasses them quite a bit and it could even be argued that they outshine another songwriting team you might have heard of known as Lennon-McCartney. But we'll save all that for another day. They certainly deserve their own episode, but just know they were extremely good at what they did. So anyway, back to the story. He had the label now functioning like a Ford assembly line. He had hired songwriters, choreographers from the Apollo to teach the groups those smooth dance moves, and he even had a finishing school which taught all the young talent good manners, how to act and carry themselves respectfully and professionally, which gave them all a similar style that became recognizable with the Motown label. With this new Motown music factory inside this converted house, they began churning out hits, actually fulfilling the prophecy of those words Barry placed over the entryway, Hitsville, USA. Hits like Shop Around by The Miracles, Motown's first million selling single, the debut of The Temptations with Oh Mother of Mine, 
Early singles from Little Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye, who both played drums on a lot of the records. Their 100th single, and also their first number one hit with the Marvelettes, and Please Mr. Postman, which would go on to also be famously covered by the Beatles. Do You Love Me by The Contours, You Beat Me to the Punch by Mary Wells, Heat Wave by Martha and the Vandellas. This list really just goes on and on, and I can actually sit here for hours listing them all. And if for some reason you don't believe me, I will have the full discography in chronological order linked on our site, courtesy of MotownJunkies.co.uk. And so anyway, while all this was going down, the Supremes were not getting any hits that would stick. The records would flop so hard that the other artists started to tease them, and everyone began to refer to them as the no-hit Supremes. That is, until Barry set them up with his best songwriting team, Holland Dozier Holland. Lamont Dozier stepped up to the plate with an idea for a little song called Where Did Our Love Go, which he then performed a rendition on the piano for the girls. And the girls were not impressed with this offering. Here's a clip from the BBC special called Deep Soul, The Uprising of Motown. In this clip, Mary Wilson from The Supremes explains the situation. One day, Barry Gordy said to us, you know, you girls are so serious. He says, I'm going to put you with my best writing team, Holland Dozier Holland. What do we particularly dislike about Where Did Our Love Go? Everything. <laughs> um, it was it was like this song. Baby, baby, where did our love go? And so, now, Florence and I, we're used to singing, right? So all we had to sing in this song was, Baby, baby, ooh, baby, 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 baby. I mean, it was like nothing. So we felt like we were insignificant as singers. It's a great documentary, maybe one of my favorites I found while researching this episode. I'll have a link to it posted on our website, www.rockandrollhistory.com. They decided to put an, at the time, unknown Diana Ross as the lead vocal on the track, even though she wasn't happy with the song either. She was phoning it in during the recording session. Here's Eddie Holland's take on the subject from the same documentary. So she sang the song as dry as she could. And the, I remember the engineer turned around and looked at me. I said, leave it alone, let's let it go. I said, it's perfect. Because he could tell by her attitude, she was saying to hell with this. But her voice wasn't. See, you know, she had that natural, beautiful, sultry voice that was coming through. And then when she, she went right through the whole song, and she said, is this what you want? I said, thank you. That's exactly what I want. Thank you. <laughs> and that was the end of it. And real quick, just to iterate how good this documentary is, here's a quick clip of Etta James talking shit on the Supremes. I loved Diana Ross. She was always sweet, and Florence was cool, and Mary was Miss Glamour girl. But uh, that was what used to bug me. So it was that, tell me, baby, tell me, daddy, baby, do do do. I didn't, I didn't care for that. <laughs> Not that they were bad in any kind of way, but it was like, why are they singing like that? I sense a hint of jealousy in her tone there, but yeah, it's great. Make sure to check it out. 
So no one in the group was really digging the song. They thought it was sounded kiddie and it lacked a hook to make it a strong song, like a big hit, like Please Mr. Postman. But Barry Gordy, trusting his own instinct, pushed it through. He knew that because of Diana's unique vocal styling, it was going to work. And work it did, as the track quickly climbed up the Billboard charts, all the way up to the tippy top and sat at number one for two weeks, and a total of nine weeks in the top ten. This massive success would be the first of nine total hits from the Holland-Dozier-Holland Supremes combination that would dominate the charts. And not only did it change the course of the Supremes, but it also cemented Motown's legacy and influence on the world. Barry Gordy's creation of Motown Records was a game-changing moment in the history of rock and roll and the world at large. With Motown, Gordy revolutionized the music industry and created a new sound that would come to define an entire era. He sought to create music that would appeal to both black and white audiences, and his vision transformed the way that music was produced and marketed. Motown's roster of talented artists, including Smokey Robinson, The Temptations, Diana Ross, they became household names and their music had a profound impact on the world. Motown's success helped break down racial barriers in the music industry and pave the way for a greater integration and acceptance into American society. Gordy's philosophy of quality control ensured that every song released by Motown was meticulously crafted, polished, and of the highest quality. This attention to detail and commitment to excellence set a new standard for the industry and inspired countless musicians and producers to follow in his footsteps. Gordy's legacy is a testament to the power of music to bring people together and to change the world. The music of Motown continues to inspire and move audiences today, and its impact on rock and roll history will never be forgotten. In addition to its cultural impact, Motown's success also had significant economic and social implications. The label employed hundreds of people and helped to create jobs and opportunities for African Americans in Detroit and beyond. Gordy's business acumen and entrepreneurial spirit were key factors in the label's success and his leadership inspired many to pursue their own dreams and aspirations. Motown's success also helped to reshape the image of African Americans in popular culture, presenting them as talented, intelligent, and sophisticated. Through his music and his business acumen, Barry Gordy left an indelible mark on the world and proved that anything is possible with hard work, dedication, and a commitment to excellence. Yeah, the baby, tell the dad and the baby to do the